Okay. Okay, good morning, everybody. Um, we're here live and plus uh, live streaming. And um, yesterday was the 123rd anniversary of the birth of Paul Robeson. And we're going to devote part of today to celebrating his birthday. For us, Paul Robeson is many things. Uh, he is a great cultural artist, singer, actor. Uh, he is a great fighter for freedom and peace. Uh, as you know, he was a part of the world movement uh, uh, against fascism and to unite the people of the world against uh, Nazism in Germany, Japanese, the Japanese occupation of China and the war on China. He was uh, a fighter against nuclear weapons, uh, which got him persecuted by the American government. But I think one thing that uh, is overlooked when we talk about Paul Robeson is his great contributions to the um, to our understanding of civilization. Uh, as you know, uh, Robeson spoke or was familiar with 25 languages. One of his uh, most important discoveries was that the languages of Central Africa, uh, which he knew, made it much easier for him to learn and speak Russian, suggesting a civilizational belt or axis going from the center of Africa up to the center of Europe, and that the Slavic languages had more in common with Central African languages than with uh, other European languages like English, French, German. The other thing is, and he states this, in, in many of his uh, writings on language and, and culture and civilization, was that uh, the, uh, the languages of Central Africa had more in common with Chinese than either had with the languages of Western Europe. He felt it was more difficult, in other words, to learn French and German than to learn Russian or Chinese going from a linguistic base uh, in, um, in, in the languages of Central Africa, uh, often referred to by linguists as that group of languages, the Bantu B languages, Bantu, B-A-N-T-U, the letter B. Um, which is uh, Bantu is the most widely spoken linguistic group in all of Africa. And Africa, again, 
is uh, the linguistic center of humanity. And it is believed that the mother tongue for all languages, and this confirms uh, Robeson, the mother tongue for all languages are seven African languages, uh, uh, which would confirm that parallels, just as a parenthetical thing, that parallels the population genetic information. In other words, there are two great population gene pools in the world, the original African and the mutation upon that, which we call the Asian gene. So genotypically, and we're not talking phenotypically, phenotype, phenotype is the way we look. It has a lot to do with modern conceptions of race. But uh, genotypically, every human population in the world carries the original African gene to be what is called anatomically modern humans means to carry African genes. The other thing which undermines the whole racist theory of history is that there is no European gene. Europeans are differently, but in various ways, but overall constituted 65% Asian genes and 35% African genes. But some populations, some populations like the ancient uh, Irish, Celtic, are genetically more similar to people in Ghana than they are genetically similar to the English which suggests that the populating of Europe, which took place over many millennia, was from Asia and Africa. And probably the most ancient Europeans were in fact Africans. But this in linguistic terms, language terms, parallels kind of what Robeson is saying that out of Africa comes not only the genes that make us all human. You know what I'm saying? Uh, this, this is a parenthesis around this one more time. We are human in the sense of anatomically modern human beings because we carry African genes. That variation which is not to be found in any other species, even those closest to us, like Neanderthals. It's a quite beautiful thing. And, you know, uh, so much of this uh, came on the scene in, um, in around 1995 in a very famous book by three Italian authors. I only remember the first one. Uh, Luigi Luca Cavalli and the book, and his, his two other associates, and the book is entitled The History and Geography of Human Genes. It's, it's worth getting in paperback, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, um, 
But Robeson, who was a student of the evolution of human civilization, saw in language this axis, one going towards Central Europe and the other going towards Asia. This part of Robeson's oeuvre, body of work, is seldom mentioned or studied. He discovered these things in practice by his return to the folk music of peoples around the world. And thus he links the civilizational interrogation to a wider political struggle to unite humanity against war and for social progress and socialism. Now, um, Divya is here today, and I want to congratulate her. She defended her dissertation yesterday. It's an unbelievable thing. Um, I remember she called me a couple weeks to tell me I'll be defending my dissertation. Then we hung up, I had to call back. I said, would you say you're defending the dissertation? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm defending my dissertation. <laughs> I never thought it would happen. I never thought it would happen. You know, um, these graduate departments are killing fields. If you don't bow down, if you don't go along with the consensus, if you happened after a few years to change your focus, you're punished. And um, Divya decided that she didn't want to do just English literature in the traditional ways or the consensus ways of doing it. There's several, including post-colonial studies. She decided she wanted to do before. And why did you say that? Oh, are you a member of the Saturday Free School? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Well, I thought so. Now we have to cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to cut you loose, as they say, with the quick. <laughs> and in this dissertation, she can tell you more, because I don't understand all of it. But she said, to understand 18th century English literature, you must not except the Aryan hypothesis that everything comes from the North and Northern Aryan tribes. And of course, Aryan means something different today than its traditional meaning. Aryan means a body of languages that stretch from Asia to Europe. But today we think when we say Aryan, people think you mean white pure white, but that's not it. But even that, she proposes the alternative thesis, the Du Boisian thesis, that civilization comes from Africa and Asia, 
and that context explains English literature of the 18th century. So she goes from Sanskrit to ancient Egyptian to Greek, Greek, and Latin. It was unbelievable. I mean, you know, we've all seen dissertations that are, um, uh, you know, bim bam, thank you, ma'am, do anything I have to do to get out. You know, <laughs> three years. That's most dissertations. But this one challenges the paradigm and begins to construct a different one. And I made that statement, and, you know, after it was, you know, she defended, and the chair of her dissertation committee agreed that it was, in fact, that. And he is in classics. But uh, maybe Divya wants to say something. Again, congratulations. Like I say, two down, Brandon Stanford and Divya, and one to go. And then two, there's two people pulling up the back, Johan and Vince. And Elena, too. So, I mean, I don't know what we're going to be able to a school, yeah. a PhD, <laughs> a factory, or what? <laughs> yeah, wow. But Vivian, would you like to say something? Um, sir, I'll begin with. I'll begin with thanking you for turning me to voice because, um, as I suggested yesterday, um, he offers a philosophy of history, much as you know, we associate with Hegel or Marx um, and, you know, Kant or these philosophers that we read who give us a way of looking at world history and the history of civilization. And um, so, you know, of course, English literature didn't really exist as we know it. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, you start with Beowulf, as we often do, uh, but Really, when you think of the history of English literature, you have to go to the Greeks and the Romans because you have the Romans conquer Britannia as a province. So um, the history of English literature takes us back to Africa and India, I suggest, because the Roman Empire stretched across, and the Greeks, of course, they had kingdoms in India, uh, the Greeks. Um, you know, Martin Bernal, as, as I think you pointed to him, through the Aryan model, uh, suggests that there were Egyptian colonizations. This is something that Herodotus talks about in the histories. But <clears throat> he just opens up a whole way of looking at the ancient world and its connection to the modern period. And um, English literature, we're going to study it honestly. Um, and then, you know, um, the influence of Sanskrit on English literature starting with the late 18th century. Um, and then, you know, what is the relation of Greek and Latin to Sanskrit, which is an older tongue. And Nehru actually says in the ancient times, there was a belt of civilization really that exists across the Mediterranean and the Arabian Sea, the Indian Ocean, and what, what is, I guess, now South China Sea. You have, you know, these uh, what he calls the painted pottery civilization, and uh, so you have, you know, places like Egypt, Ethiopia, Greece, Rome, uh, stretching all the way into, you know, Indus Valley, uh, Yangtze, 
study these in continuity because the ancients obviously did not have ideas of white and black. Aryans, as Du Bois points out, is, you know, there were very dark Aryans and still are. They're very dark Brahmin people in the south of India and in Bengal. Uh, you know, and the caste didn't, is not like one thing across time, as I think you pointed out in one of your essays, uh, which is something that Du Bois also says. You have Negroid Aryans, you have uh, Krishnas and Rama. These are Aryan gods, but they're black. Krishna literally means black. So when you go to Dark Princess, you will be like, wow, this is a, more than a political allegory, it's a civilizational allegory. I have to read it because it's so much knowledge and so much research and a paradigm challenging a paradigm. Mm -hmm. And that and and you know, and that's where the problem started. How dare you? And how dare you take what they're talking about up in North Philly at the Church of the Advocate <laughs> and bring it into the University of Pennsylvania. And she persisted. And I don't know how you did it, Divya. I mean, I really don't. It's, you know, if you, anybody that's been through a PhD, they can think cool because you're dealing with people often who are not normal. I have to put it that way. <laughs> and, and, you know, they can't, they have very little power outside of their department. And so they're going to be, you know, um, like dictators in it. And I will destroy you if you do not do as I tell you to do. I mean, why can't we just disagree? <laughs> but uh, I don't know how you did it. And uh, like I'm saying, her mother and father were there. Oh, that was so sweet. And her sister. And her swami, uh, her, her guru, her, uh, her, you know, from Harvard, an Indian man. It was it was a deep thing. And then the committee, and um, everybody was was happy. Her chair was happy. Uh, it was one the chair was from classics, and the two others were from the Department of Literature at Penn, which is one of these elite places, these literature departments, because English, the lingua franca, the language of the world, you dig what I'm saying? This is no small matter. And what she says is, quote, the language of the world, it's grammar, it's mythology, it's tropes, come from Africa and Asia. And what is the... I'm using a Du Bois in argument. Whoever thought that Du Bois in the world in Africa was a classicist? She discovers it. He never calls himself that. This is the interesting, even though the classics were. Put yourself, put yourself there. Yeah. Even though the classics were appealed by then, he never called himself like I am a classicist. You know, and his first appointment was in Greek and Latin at Wilberforce. And, um, you know, we keep saying, you know, well-recognized, but at the same time, we don't understand, really, because the Greek and the Roman mythology pervades his historiography and his uh, 
reporters request for the jewels, please. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dark prints are of interesting because he's saying, well, look at the ancient uh, Buddhist uh, civilization of India. He's talking about Brahman, you know, so the priest. Yeah. It's a lot. You know, I know Michelle wants to go. I know you want to go to uh, Baldwin next. <laughs> and, and it's like a tug of war. I'm saying, what about the quest? The silver plate. <laughs> so somebody might die in this battle. <laughs> the stakes are very high. <laughs> But yeah, uh, maybe somebody else wants to say something or ask Sylvia a question. It's quite. I, I, oh yeah, go 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 ahead, Yvonne. Yeah, Yvonne was there too. Oh, Yvonne yeah. and I were representing the priest. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to say that I'm grateful um, for Sylvia's persistence and <clears throat> bringing the boys to University 10 and the academic, the academy in another way, in a true way. And I appreciated a comment from her chair who indicated that he had only taught and seemingly read the soul for black folks. And like you said, I didn't even understand that. He admitted that. He said, well, you need to come to the preschool. But anyway. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Excuse me, Bob. It's okay. <laughs> and he admitted to have learned that the committee had learned a great deal during your journey. And that, I thought, was very significant. Not only for the committee, but for your efforts. Yeah. And I just want to thank you, yeah. um, particularly for giving acknowledgement yeah. to the Saturday School. And I, you know, I think of, as I told you, our sessions, our reading groups during the Year of the Boys in the World of Africa. That's part of that journey. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, there's a lot to say. I mean, but if, if you don't mind, but ropes and and I'm certain, Divya, if you you know do this tease this out as probably only you can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, you know, I. By the way, she was she presented at a conference, a Zoom conference at Penn State. And what was it? Was, what was the title? Not showing the boys. Sorry. The boys in the ancient Mediterranean. Oh, wow. That's right. And, and this whole civilizational question, you know what I'm saying? And that's, and the preschool, even as we talk about Robeson, or we talk about China, and uh, Du Bois's the new communism theory. You know, it's very familiar to us because we have always looked at China and India and Africa, multiple civilizations in Africa. We've always looked at civilization and uh, and not the nation as the primary organizing thing. And that's Du Bois, and that's, it, 
and that's Robeson, and the study of language, and the speaking of languages, and the singing of folk songs in many languages, uh, and singing, you know, the Soviet national anthem uh, so well that he sang it, the Russian was perfect, or the Chinese national anthem, like a Chinese speaker. That meticulousness, that people matter, that their languages matter, that their civilizations matter. And this is at a time when the West is proclaiming its right to destroy civilizations because the Chinese had so many people that they could lose half of them and they wouldn't care anyway. That is the way they spoke. That is the way they think and thought. But Robeson, in his generosity and gentleness, said, all people count. And the way I know it is their music, their folk music, the folk music of the ordinary person. And this is what we have called here inter-civilizational unity. How would you put it? it? It is primary over the nation state. Yeah, and that's what she discovers. And that's why you have to go to language and you have to go to the folk, the ordinary people. Because there's something that is superior and primary to the nation state. In Western political theory, bourgeois theory, which is pretty much all of it, you know, in Western theory, it is only the nation state and only the citizen. There is nothing else. For Robeson, what was there before the nation state and before the legal category, citizen? It was the folk. It was the tribe. It was the clan. It was the family. And even today, as we confront many, I would call them post postmodernist ways of articulating the human. And you know, we've been back and forth with this on the on gender and race, but especially gender and sexual identities and so on. The question is, what are the lessons from civilization? Not what a university professor or department at an elite university in some experiment in human development says. But what is the record of human civilization? And what can we learn? And what can we learn in order to go forward? And this is what I think Robeson offers us in the same way that Du Bois offers us so much. And um, that's, I guess that's all I want to say. Oh, go, go ahead, Fran. Yeah, no, I mean, this um, conversation is making me reflect on a lot of things because I feel like I when you want to make me weak. 
I mean, uh, it looks like you get emotional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> because it's, it's giving me a context, it's giving me a criteria to understand history more. And like, I feel like when immigrants come to the United States, they are somehow indoctrinated with the idea that every people is a people unto itself, or every nation is a nation unto itself. And like, one of the fears that they have to overcome, or the problems, is that once once you get to the same position as Robeson about civilizations coming from Africa and then civilizations being born from one another after that, you have to indict the West. You have to indict the, the partitions that come from, that Europe did to Africa and Asia. And I was, yeah, I was getting emotional because I was reflecting on my experience in Cambodia and Vietnam because I had traveled from the westernmost part of Cambodia towards the east, towards Vietnam. And as you go from one side of Cambodia to the, the eastern side, you notice how the, um, the people kind of change. Like, as you go east, they start looking more Vietnamese. And they even start speaking Vietnamese. And then when you finally cross the border into Vietnam, the Vietnamese people on that side of the border touching Cambodia look Cambodian and they speak Cambodian. And once I got to Ho Chi Minh City, the language, I was so used to listening to Cambodian for over a week that the language when I got to Ho Chi Minh City was almost indistinct. So then it, it made me think like, how did the Khmer Rouge in 1975 pledged to invade Vietnam on behalf of taking back the ancient land that belonged to them. And how do you get a people to kill their own brothers? Like when there's so much ancient civilization like connecting them. And um, I think the same thing goes for like Bangladesh. Like how did that happen? So yeah, I mean, once you get to uh, once you arrive to the point of focusing on civilization, like you have to attack the West. Mm -hmm. I'll just read some comments from uh, Facebook. Uh, Patrice Armstead writes, uh, August Wilson once stated three people influenced his work. Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Amiri Baraka. <laughs> wow. Chris, Chris Rogers from the Paul Robeson House response. This is an event. Uh, Nabila writes, uh, I'm cheering for a new doctor. Question, how did Aryan go from being Asian as now understood as German from Hitler's days? You want to answer that, Divya? Oh, I, I sure can. Um, so Aryan, for example, like Du Bois says, this is a historiographic paradigm that really the, the idea of Aryan doesn't really exist even in the European imagination until about the second half of the 18th century. Wow. Because throughout the 18th century, we're, see, like when the Renaissance, let's go to the Renaissance. During the Renaissance, the Europeans basically lost during the Dark Ages, as they call it. There's a loss of knowledge because the Western Roman Empire collapses, and then you still the, 
the ancient Greek texts are preserved in the Eastern Roman Empire. So I'm suggesting, but then, you know, if they forget how to get to India, but the Greeks knew how to get to India. The Romans knew how to get to India, but the, the Western Europeans, after you know, the first millennium in the Christian civilization, they forget the passage to India. But then you have Vasco da Gama and so on, and uh, the English follow suit after the Portuguese. But this Indian knowledge, you know, particularly Hindu civilization, um, because there is contact between the Christians and the Islamic civilizations during the Crusades, but Islam is in the 7th century. Anyway, but going back to India, the Hindus, their texts are only translated on mass, probably starting in the second half of the 18th century, when after the Battle of Plassey, um, when you have the conquest of Bengal, the founding of the Asiatic Society of Bengal, people like William Jones. But then, you know, you have to, there's this translation of Indian philosophy. And then the British starts to think about, well, what is Sanskrit? How is it related to Greek and Latin, right? And the Germans especially, more so than the British uh, translating um, Indian philosophy, which is why we have to think about the influence on people like Hegel and Kant. Concept of phenomenology, for example, right? It's, anyway, going back to the Aryan thing, so then they start to uh, ask, well, how, how are the Aryans related to the Greeks? So they say Greeks are an Aryan civilization. Okay, there maybe actually have been Aryan influence coming from the West to Greece, but the idea that Aryans were white people is created um, in the 19th century because you have the Greek War of Independence against the Ottoman Empire, which is connected to Africa, Egypt, and they want Egypt, of course. So you have the rise of Egyptology and Indology at the same time. But now Egypt and India are somehow separate. But they needed Egypt to get to India because of the of the, the maritime route. The French and the British wanted India. So you have Napoleon invade Egypt in 1798. Um, and this creates um, an incentive for the British, because the British and the French are historically enemies. As we see in the American Revolution, so the French forces assist the American troops. So this is this long history of the Aryan model, and it's all political because the Aryans, when you go back to the Indian sacred texts, the Vedas and the Vedanta, um, it's about modes of production. It's about the, the spiritual life, the idea of the soul, which is, uh, and then this goes back to the religion question, religion and civilization. So the nation state is, as you say, um, relatively recent political formation, but the Aryans were civilization, and even beyond language, I would suggest, because you, uh, it was a philosophy of existence, you know, it was, you know, uh, it was spiritual life, it was uh, adherence to certain customs, such as, you know, the, the uh, not eating, and the cows were like sacred, for example. Uh, not, you know, not always. In the, in the beginning, there's some.
some stories of Aries being Zeus, but then you see in, in some texts, uh, yeah, you see it, it's a progressive adoption of uh, non-killing as an ideal of civilization. Uh, then the language, Sanskrit, which is uh, how the originally oral tales are, you know, several centuries later written down as what we have now as the readers. Those are the areas. Yeah, yeah, the areas. Yeah, and they're not what the what Hitler was talking about. No, yeah. because the Germans completely transformed the idea of the um, the idea that man is God to this corrupt end. Man is divine, as we see in the voice, you know. Uh, but the test of man's divinity, when you look at Gandhi, and Gandhi said the same thing. The divinity of man is is in his renunciation, not in his arrogance. But you see someone like Hitler is doing the very opposite. It's selfish. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not what being divine is. Or embracing one's divinity. What is it? Well, I have a question. What when we say Aryan, I just want because I you know, I do conceptualize it as okay, those white people, Aryan, you know, Hitler, you know. Um, but it seems like the I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm wondering geographically, okay, so from where to where and who to who, you know, um, because Aryans doesn't necessarily mean white people. There, that is a necessary, uh, like, reconfiguration of civilization. Like, I, I know Nuri talked last, last week to me about Reorient, you know, the, you know this economic uh, uplift of, of, you know, Africa and Asia during the slave trade. It wasn't just the slave trade, you know, so I'm thinking about it in, in light of, you know, okay, what was what, did civil, what was civilization really during, you know, the African slave trade? You know, it's, it's not quite it's simple. So, so who, where geographically, you know, uh, are the Aryans? Who are they? You know, because is it, is it Germanic people? Is it French or like? Because I know they invaded India. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a theory that's always contested. Whether there was in fact an Aryan invasion or whether Aryans were native to India. Uh, okay. some, and some people say the whole idea, and for example, Swami Vivekananda says, you know, this whole idea that there were these Aryan, white Aryan people that swooped down and pushed down these black Dravidian people. This, this, and so Dravidian does not exist as a linguistic term until about the 19th century. So the European philologists, they reconfigure, you know, now, now the history of science. Uh, they reconfigure, lingu you know, just the philosophy of language. So what we even believe of what the Aryans did, they, you know, drove down these unsavage Aborigines, uh, you know, down south. Now, when you read the Ramayana, the civilization of Ravana, the king that uh, Rama conquers. Now, Rama is dark. Ravana is also dark, right? But Ravana is the civilization, he's like the demon king that Rama defeats. But Ravana's civilization is actually more advanced. So the Aryans were a pastoral people, you know, cows and, you know, they farmed and, you know, they weren't really war making. Uh, but it's interesting how that history of the Aryans invading India gets rewritten. Re 
in the 19th century. And so, so much of what we are even just taught in textbooks about the history of ancient India is constantly being, uh, I think, challenged through this idea that Aryans were white people. And the idea that, you know, that um, there wasn't, for example, interchange between the older, the older quote, Dravidian civilizations. Now, the Greeks and the Romans don't call anyone Dravidian. In fact, they refer to the southern Indian people as, um, let's say, Malabar, or, you know, they call them, call us southern, they call us Oriental Ethiopians. Oh. Oh. And the calls us, you know, he said, of the straighter haired Negroid type. That's how, where's where he gets the, uh, that from in North in Asia and Africa. So I, that's how, I don't know if I answered the question there. Yeah, but see, the Aryan thing, throw out everything that you've heard. Okay. <laughs> you know, and what Divya's research in Du Bois is that the Aryan, see this idea that all civilization came from these pure tribes of white people roaming the northern part of the globe. And they pushed the darker people down and they occupied Greece. And that's where Greek civilization comes from. And then they pushed the darker people in the Indian subcontinent down. And they, you know, it's, it's this idea that all civilization comes from white people. Right. You know, and they have to go north because phenotypically, uh, people who live in northern climes are lighter than people in the so it's a race it's a race theory and the, see the thing this is what this is what we come to we might not be able to solve the whole problem right today but if you're going to deal with the question of white supremacy you have to deal with the Aryan model of history mm -hmm. this is what Divya's research is showing. Mm -hmm. A theory of history that is Aryan-based mm -hmm. mm -hmm. will, by definition, impose a white supremacist interpretation upon literature. So we understand the English language in ways that people of the 18th century, not to mention the 17th century, did not understand it. You see, they were less, in other words, even with the transatlantic slave trade, let me put it this way. They were less racist than, than we are today. Right. That, so, yeah. I feel like that's, so you could say Hitler won. <laughs> but I, I won't do that. I feel like that's a propaganda of history, though. Well, true. If Aryans, I feel like this is different because if Aryans, if we view, it literally and historically, uh, if we view Aryans, we view the Aryans as white supremacists, I mean, as white, as, as white, as, white as, exactly, as the ones that drove history, or, uh, drove history, drove uh, uh, civilization downward, yeah. then, yeah, then yeah, yes, we come to the idea historically with this racial theory um, that, uh, well, white people are, are supreme, that's you know, right. that white people are on, on top, literally on top of the world, that's right. you know, if you want to conceptualize it like that, you know, and so I feel like, if, but you see, and this is this is necessarily different. If Aryans didn't view themselves as white, Aryans viewed themselves as part of you know as part of this uh, intercivilizational unity. If they found themselves amongst the colored peoples of the world, then then you know and, and it, you know that I feel you know in looking in history that way frees white people and frees the population from absolutely from, from white here is, yeah. 
This is the foundation of the ideological stuff. This is not the superficiality of current political discourse. This is what we discover. And it's, it's pronounced in Rosen. It's very developed, as, as Divya's dissertation shows, in Du Bois, because it is through Du Bois that she can see Sanskrit and Greek and the ancient Egyptian language. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is a, a great discovery. I think it is paradigm shifting, but it gives us a more sophisticated way to go out in the world and attack white supremacy because you're attacking the philosophy of history. And I, you know, she, she raises in the dissertation Hegel's philosophy of history, which is an Aryan model. Hegel literally says, civilization be begins with white people and will reach its highest stage with white people, i.e. Germans. This is, you know, I mean, in other words, it's a zero-sum game. White people win no matter what they do. Yes, we can destroy everybody in the world, transatlantic, but we're still the greatest. Because even though we carried out the transatlantic slave trade, you know, you all should be happy because we gave you the English language. Make a break well. Yeah, we've given you civilization. You see what I'm saying? And that's why even behind, I feel, even behind many of the so-called critical race theorists <laughs> is a form of American nationalism and American exceptionalism. I like to underline American exceptionalism that America's theory of race is the theory of race. And if we change America's theory of race, we change the world's understanding of race. Well, I think 1.4 billion Chinese have something to say about that. <laughs> but, but this is very important. It is a, uh, a, an egocentrist kind of uh, hyper-nationalism when it comes to discourse, when it comes to politics, when it comes to knowledge. And, and you know, oh, oh go quickly, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah I, so in this sense, uh, what Divya proposed, I think what the free school has been proposing for some time is that you have to get at the deep structure of knowledge. Mm -hmm. What is the philosophy of history that guides this? And history is so important, uh, you know, and, and, and frankly, American culture is anti-historical mm -hmm. because America is exceptional. It's almost a form of the Aryan thesis, like the Germans. Exactly that. Oh, well, go ahead, go ahead. Mm -hmm.
you know, he's drawing on Gita, for example, and then you have all the way down to um, you know, someone like T.S. Eliot. But see, oh, and I, I wouldn't put Emerson and T.S. Eliot in the same camp, but the thing is, Romanticism, which is the movement that is so influenced in you know, Hegel, Kant, everyone, <clears throat> then you tra it travels over to the United States as transcendentalism, mm -hmm. a transcendental. See that whole I, that whole philosophy comes to Europe, I believe, um, from India. Yeah. Um, and but isn't it interesting the Aryan model uh, as applied to Indian history? You take a person like Perry Anderson, the British Trotskyist, mm -hmm. that says that the British invented India as a nation, mm -hmm. but which he meant even as a civilization. Or you get the Indian in America, who in many ways sees themselves. This is why the book Cash doesn't apply to America or Indians in America. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they're not they're not trying to reinvent a caste system here mm -hmm. or to instruct Americans on how to perfect quote our caste system. Mm -hmm. What they are really saying is we are Aryans. Mm -hmm. Most Indians, professionals in America, adopt the Aryan thesis. Therefore, they say, it's not a matter of how light or dark we are. We prefer to be lighter, but we can be dark too. But we are Aryans. And this is the day. This is why you get Nikki Haley when asked, I'm a white woman. Bobby Jindal, who was, don't even look white, but I'm white. Because he's, they're saying we're Aryans. They say we're Aryans, but it's a complete repudiation. Or the Dalit, you know, <laughs> or the debate of, yeah, it, it's a complex, but I think, and, and you know, we can go more into Aryan, Aryan history, the, his, the philosophy of history that centralizes Aryans yeah. as a pure race. We got to, you know, interrogate what is purity. Yeah. Uh, is purity, well, you know, just a whole, I don't want to get into all of that, but Robeson. And, and you know, uh, yesterday I was on a panel that was on Zoom, uh, which, you know, talking about the 100, organized by the uh, Paul Robeson House. And uh, they did a, a good job with some weaknesses, you know, with some weakness. And one of the great weaknesses overall is not to deal with Paul Robeson as a theorist of history, as a theorist of civilization, as understanding the unity of humanity as not just nations uniting or populations in nations or citizens of nations uniting, but as, as Brandon Doja said, as these broad movement of human civilization and how they have historically over millennia intertwined, interacted, uh, and only become, see themselves as distinct when the colonialists come and partition them. As with, you know, Bangladesh or Pakistan, the, you know. You know, going back to Brandon's point, um, like when you look back to the ancient period, 
parts of Vietnam, and they were Hindu, like you go to Cambodia, you have, and you know, then China became Buddhist. Uh, you have, you go to Indonesia, they they certainly are Hindus there, um, but it the civilizational state of Ashoka, for example, Chandragupta, the Mauryan Empire, you know, it's. It's that framework that I think the voyage is working within. And uh, well, yeah, and it reminds me of Lenin because the romantic paradigm of the, you know, self determination comes from Hegel, right? Um, but it was self determination for the European nation state. But then what's so important about Lenin, and I think, you know, we had to go through those stages of contestation. He says, the right to self-determination of all people, including the colonies. Or, or you know, uh, even a more provocative thesis that Lenin puts forward is, you know, in the essay, Advanced Asian Backward Europe, which is so interesting. It's a part of our thesis as we go forward you know, with Bangladesh in the end of April and the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party in July. You know, but it's that kind of heavy lifting that has to be done to move discourse and ideology forward. We can't say stay stuck on where we are now in this country. We can talk a bit about that. But this discourse on race is really not about freedom. You know, it's so interesting. Everybody's talking about race. Everybody's upset about racial oppression. Even so, we're going to tear down every statue we can find. And I, find, I felt that there was a bit of irony in the whole tearing down the statue, and yet you're going to vote for Joe Biden. I know, that's right. <laughs> put forward the crime bill that put four black young men in jail that were enslaved in the 1850s. But it's all right to vote for him, right. but tear down Andrew Jackson's uh, a statue. And maybe what, if we get around to it, let's bring Lincoln down. You know? <laughs> right. Tear the whole thing down. Right. I mean, right. But Joe Biden is okay. Because the ruling, but you did what I'm saying. But, oh, I'm sorry, don't, don't, go ahead, Vince. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, um, I, I mean, I think this is where Robinson's civilizational perspective is just so different because if you see yourself as connected along the civilizational belt, you don't really have to tear things down in the same way because there's this, you know, there's a positive or alternative identity that one can take on. And I think what is, is disheartening in today's, you know, academia, and I don't I don't know if, if Divya ran across this, you know, in, in this whole process is, you know, this suspicion of the category of the folk entirely. You know, people hate it because they associate it with German thought that then was a teleology leading to Nazism. So therefore, any form of the folk is inherently reactionary. It's a racial ideology. But I think what Robeson did was he actually turned that on its head and saw it as something that connects people, not just something that divides them. So, you know, when you talk about folk now, you know, in, in music in particular, everybody just thinks about difference. You know, how is every single music its own self-contained thing that has no relation to anything else? 
Whereas what he was trying to do, I think he calls it, you know, the inner ties of humanity between these folk music, which is a totally, I think, different perspective, you know, that avoids this pitfall now where people just throw out the folk altogether. And then you just have bourgeois theory and you just have bourgeois culture in the name of fighting racism, which is really just, we, we didn't like Nazism, and this is all about Germany and ended up. Um, you know, going to its natural conclusion in the German state. So I think, you know, revising this perspective really challenges so much. <laughs> Go ahead, Meg, and then Emil. No, I, I also just think it's deep how all these supposedly anti-racist theories are rooted in racist thinking. I mean, like, I mean, like, what you're, I mean, I was thinking about the Dravidian thesis, which is really the whole cultural nationalist thing, like, the Dravidian civilizational civilizations and languages are are distinct from the Aryans, but this was propagated by a Scottish missionary who wanted to convert South Indians to Christianity. Um, but you can't say them without being called who's a nationalist. But I mean, this this idea of like I mean they've they've taken away our vision of the future, which is like Brandon was saying, reuniting humanity, which has been lost. I mean, those those connections have been lost on non-white terms. That is the anti-racist vision. Um, but just how, even the ways that we think about, you know, progressive, I mean, it's, it's, it's ultimately just the same racism propagating itself. You are backwards, you are disconnected, you are fractured, you are just incapable of ever leaving yourself doing anything positive. Um, so I think it's I think, yeah, this thing of getting to the underlying structures of thought is just so incredibly deep and important. And it's true, they just, they really do encourage you three years, get in, get out, just finish, just finish, just finish. You have your whole career to just do the same mediocre bullshit again and again and again. Um, uh, but I, I think it, it is really brave to do something that actually, I mean, that's what, that's what scholars have, that is the duty of the intellectual, that's the duty of the, that's the, duty of the revolutionary. Um, so yeah, I just yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've come across the Dravidian nationalist stuff, um, but this is really challenging. That interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know all this is sort of making me think about how uh, we teach history. Um, one one story my my mother imparted on me, and she grew up in Western Germany, but she spent some time in Eastern Germany, and the the differences between how history was taught in those two different uh, places was was quite striking. In the West, it was how ashamed we were that we did this horrible thing and, and we'll hopefully never do it again. And the East was, we had a rich tradition of fighting this and we are proud of it. Which one of those things do that incite um, you know, struggle? Um, but also the conversations make me think of this, this essay that um, Paul Robeson uh, talked about is that the Negroes don't ape the whites. Um, and uh, it really kind of ties into this is, is you know, uh, what what do we what do we uh, give up when we decide to identify with this group that they say you know they're they're the civilization of the free world or they're you know which is an interesting thing because you know we this this culture in the West spends its time destroying civilization I mean to me that's the complete opposite of the term um, but I'm just going to read a couple parts of this you know he says uh, what would become of the genius of Marie Lloyd if she had been ashamed of being cocky. Would, uh, would Robert Burns have been as great a poet if he had denied his plowman speech and ate the gentleman of his day? Right. Don't misunderstand me. Do not think I am trying to say 
that those born in inequality cannot become cultured people. I mean exactly the reverse. I am attacking the impulse which drives such people to hide their true value under a false foreign culture applied from the outside, when instead it can encourage a graceful natural growth from within. Um, and later on, he says, um, you know, uh, with the coming of uh, the Renaissance, something happened to Europe. Before then, the, alt, the art, the literature, the music were akin to Asiatic cultures. With the Renaissance, reason and intellect were placed above intuition and feeling. The result has been a race which con conquered nature and now rules the world. But the art of that race has paid the price. As science has advanced, the art standards of the West have steadily declined. Intellectualized art grows uh, tenuous and sterile. This is a serious thought. To what end uh, does the West rule the world if all art dies? Jesus the, the Eastern, Jesus the Eastern was hey. right. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? Um, yeah, I mean, um, all that kind of ties into what we're talking about. You know, what um, what is being sacrificed, um, and what is what is the um, what is the goal we're really looking to accomplish here? Uh, you know, is it is it are we we feel we have a right to this, or is there is there is there some calling of a responsibility to what it means to have to live, mm -hmm. you know, as a human being in this world? Yeah. I wanted to also read something Africa. I began to listen to them 
as they talked with each other, and finally I plunged into the learning of languages of my ancestors. This is just a short article, but from time to time I hope to return to this, or this very favorite subject of mine. Today, we know much of the great creative art of the African people in sculpture, in their working of metals, gold, silver, iron. We know of the marvels that they have achieved in their weaving of beautiful cloth and textiles. There are now available magnificent translations of great poetry. Many modern musicians have composed major works based upon the African musical idiom. And finally, the Bible and much great literature have been translated into numerous African languages. The African languages are varied and complex, but in structure, they resemble many of the tongues of other and similar cultures. In studying at the School of Oriental Languages at the University of London, I was startled to find Westerman, an authority on African languages, grouping the West African tongues with the Chinese. But unquestionably, these different groups are very similar in the use of tone, in the use of one syllable basic words, and in the quote unquote thinking behind the language. For example, there's a deep meaning in the Chinese thinking of the past event, thus, I work, finish, rather than the use of inflections like ED, I work. Again, the words sun and moon equal light. The words big and little equal size. The words east and west equal a thing. Parentheses, all things are included within the boundaries of north, south, and west. Mm -hmm. The African mind works very, very much in the same way. Again, both the Chinese and African people make extensive use of tone. Mm -hmm. In the Peking branch of Chinese, there are four tones, somewhat similar in the in or to our intonations of the word yes. For example, yes. What did you say? High level job. Yes? Do you really mean that? First from tone upward. Yes, well maybe. Down and up. <laughs> and then yes. A very final yes from high down. Now, a word pronounced shu means book in the first tone, right in the second tone, belong to in the third, and drum in the fourth. In Ethic, the language of Calabar in southern Nigeria, use of tone and much is much use of tone is much more complicated. Thus, obon, albon, or whatever, has different meanings in different tones. Ubon too too high is mosquito. Obong, high low, a cane, or he shouts. Obong, high to middle, she is king. So, one would get into serious trouble calling a chief in the field. An African also uses tone to shape his grammar as well as to give the same word different meaning. As with the Chinese, this is a development represent, representative of a high level of culture. It's interesting that the Bantu tongues of East and South Africa are in structure much like the languages of Mongolia or Hungarian or Japanese. They're characterized uh, by a very big word, 
so he's been on those campaigns and stuff. I was like, that's cool, you know, I was, because I, I have interest in languages. I've been looking at it. Um, and But then he comes around to say, yeah, well, the, the Chinese people don't have any type of uh, structure or any type of, like, uh, what is it? Sentence, you know, the, the grammar. sentence, grammar, 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 grammar. grammar. Yeah. stuff like that. And I was like, okay, it's busy. Because <laughs> they're obviously able to talk to each other. <laughs> but,
even like the concept double consciousness. Okay. Like how or like you use that. Mm. Like you know, um, you say one thing, and you know you have to deal right. with multiple things at the same time. Right. You know, you can say as a black man, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. but you know you gotta, you know, you gotta make your way somehow. Um, so it's the logic, I guess, that kind of also is applied to the learning of languages, to the way people interact. And it's um, that's why, like, with that's why it's like there's more connections than there are disconnections generally between human beings. Yeah. And, Could you say that one more time? <laughs> <laughs> no, there is connections between human beings. Period. Connections and disconnections between human beings, and that's why you know music is able to correlate ideas that uh, can be that can touch the heart of people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, what you said, Vincent, in terms of the folk, you know? Mm-hmm. And the whole questions that we have about, like, just how people interact, and also how people, like, how how one is supposed to be a man, for instance, in society, how one is supposed to be a woman, so, you know? But, um, but yeah, like, the way I see it is, like, like, there's a, like, music is a question, um, language is also, you know, a question, I guess you would say, um, the visual, the dancing and all those things, um, but it's also like, um, like, like the, the striving of the people and then, you know, the, where are people is going to go. And I think when we're just using English, for instance, or if we just know English, it can be used or it can be like, it can be constraining or it can't be. You know, it depends where you stand in terms of your relationship to your civilization. I guess for black people, they would use the English language differently, yeah. as we have obviously seen. That's so cool. No, I know, I know, I'm saying that black people do use the English language differently. That's, right. That's why you know you have Sun Ra and his study in phonetics, you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. At least you know he talks about it. But, but yeah. I'll just quickly read a comment from Manusvi. She writes, I study linguistics at college and we are taught that these languages are completely different language families, mm-hmm. different in underlying structure. Before reading ropes, and I knew nothing of the similarities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like when it comes to languages, I feel like it's interesting how Robeson talks about um, the different, like the sound. One thing uh, Raju one time pointed out, he said, you know, uh, Robeson in his essay, Songs for My People, I never, I never forgot him saying this. You know, he said these folk, folk music uh, was a basis for intercivilizational unity, you know, and, you know, this is why at every peace conference they would have music, they would have singing, you know, and I do think of Mahalia in that moment. I do think of like Robeson. Um, but it's interesting how the language. Um, is is form because it's 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 about the sound as well. You know, it's the sound almost dictates what the word means. And so I feel that you know, in these ancient languages, they've developed for thousands and thousands of years, you know, for millennia. You know, they've developed it to further this sense, further unity, further further uh, the coming together of people through through music. Because that's 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 you're singing, 
you know, this is this. Uh, we're not. We're not. This is. It's not English in the same in the sense of uh, uh, American English. It's English in the sense of Black English necessarily. In the sense of like when we hear uh, Black people talk, you know, uh, we hear uh, you know the musicality when we go when you go down south, you know, it's 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 it's, it's a song, you know, because these people were singing. You know, because we, we were singing on the plantation, we were singing after we got off the plantation, you know. Um, and even if you go to the Iwe and the Chinese, this is this is a song, you know, this is like and to, to go to the, the title of the article, Songs for My People. I, I think it's a it's a continual it's a continual sing, you know, it's it's a continual uh, I, I guess it's because it reminds me of I think Michelle or somebody pointed out the, the importance of beauty. Um, the importance of beauty in civilization. Um, and I feel like this is a, a, a necessary step toward beauty in civilization um, because it's like, okay, well, we're talking to one another. That's well and good. Um, and we've come up with, with these songs, you know, that's well and good. How can we make uh, our communication with one each other even more beautiful? Why don't we sing to one another, you know, um, while we're talking, you know? So I, that's why this whole identity politics, though, is going to change this language, you know, because it's changing, like, you use different words. Exactly. You use different words. Yeah. And for instance, like, like, I hear a lot of talk about community, but nobody knows about neighbors. Or brotherhood. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's like, you know, I mean, you're just re trying to reconstruct a human being and a human being's thoughts about how one they think about themselves and who they are in the world from square one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, but see, you don't need to. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no. That's true. But that all comes with a theory. You know, it's not just out of nowhere that they're saying you should be called this. And then those theories are justified within universities that have nothing to do with people. Then people also intake that because that's the harm to do. Or that's just what, you know, what your children really are saying to you. So you have to understand them. You know what I mean? No, I'm sorry. I just, I just on the flip side. Yeah, yeah, I was going to. Yeah, I was just on the flip side. Then there, you know, I think Serpent is pointing out there's a theory for the language uh, of identity politics, this new way, but there's a theory to the, you know, there's a deeper civilizational theory in the language of, uh, of, of DC, say, I don't know, um, of the Benin, of, 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 of Chinese people, you know, I think, you know. No, I think this conversation also makes me think a lot about being situated in the larger American situation and, and Oh really? Okay. Well, being being situated in you know the American situation in crisis, and then also being situated back in the city of Philadelphia, because this has been on my mind a lot since you know we are meeting in preschool again. Like we're meeting at the church, like the historic church of the Apostle in North Philly, and um, and so many people. Like I mean, there are people even just visiting Philadelphia this week, and people who have moved to Philadelphia in the past year. And I think Robeson and this civilizational belt pieces. Like this is clicking for me because it has so much to say in terms of making sense of our situation today. And this thing, like you guys are saying with the universities and identity politics, you see it in the way that people move through the city where they think that to produce art and culture, like they see no link to the art and culture of like a struggle, you know, decades past of the city. like. Actually, this morning, um, uh, uh, Caleb and I were um, at Fairmount Park, and 
we ran into a guy who was visiting from Chicago, and he said, you know, what are some places that you would recommend that I visit? And um, and it's like, what does your mind go to? You know, because the question that I ask myself is like, what is Philadelphia defined by to me? And it's it's really the history of struggle that has made this place. But um, but yeah, I, it it made me think about like, you know, even the Church of the Advocate. Like we see, like we see the unity. Like we see, we see what it means for us to be based here, and that it tells something about who we are and what we can give to the city. And that thing, like that that link, that synthesis, and moving forward and creating unity, like all of that spirit is captured in this thesis. And um, it's just, yeah, I guess it also get, gives me a sense of appreciation for how stark and brutal something like uh, the ideology of the university is because it produces people who move about the city and relate to it in a very distinctive and, and dominating way uh, where you're fearful about realizing what you have in unity or could have in unity with the actual people, you know, who have made this city. And then, and then of course, like if you want to broaden the situation to America, it like I've been thinking about the white worker a lot and how disenfranchised they are and how much white people, uh, or I guess the tendency among like the white elites or the activist whites, whatever, um, is to distance themselves as much as possible from the white worker. But kind of like with what you brought up, Vincent, like the truth is that you don't need to, like you don't need to just erase, but rather you can link through the positive, like link through the folk, you know, the heart, what makes everyone human. And um, yeah, it's like, I feel like this idea of the civilizational bill, it even needs to be restored so much like in this nation, like in this city. And you see all the gaps so clearly, like the way that the forces of gentrification rate in the city, like in North Philly, it has a certain look, in West Philly, it has a certain look, but just the, it's so grating, you know, like you see different worlds grating against each other and people, people walking through it with so much willful ignorance and fear. Like, yeah, it's just, I think it just really reaffirms, you know, like this thing about ancient civilization, it does have so much to teach us for understanding, you know, what, what we're seeing today. Um, yeah. yeah. The conversation also, oh, the conversation also reminds me of this line from the Bandung Conference. Um, it was the, he was the chairman of the conference, also I think Prime Minister of Indonesia, Ali Sashtamadojo. And he specifically says, all these recently independent African and Asian nations together gathering for the first time, he says we've lost a lot from colonialism. And although we are different people, we have so much in common in terms of spiritual heritage, like a, a tendency to care about the morals, not just Procedures. We also, he also says the goal is to speak. He, like the hope is that here at Bendung, we will speak with the same language, which is language of struggle that's defined by people. And you know, it's like it's both that there is a shared language, civilizationally or connection, but there's also a shared language for the future and seen in the traditions of the anti-colonial struggle, also the global struggle for peace and democracy, which is the language of struggle. And I think that relates to what you've been saying, what you just said, Michelle. Um, 
and yeah, and also I love what you said, Serafina, about how today there's a new language, both language, and it's not just the slogans, but even like you said, people are always saying community, community for the community, about the community, but that's so abstract. And what happens to the concrete understanding of sisterhood, brotherhood, humanity, your neighbor, um, and it's. And I mean, the woke language is what's being taught to so many young people who are going into college, but also are learning it in high school too. Public education, there's a new, there's a new philosophy and teaching of a woke language. Yeah, but, but, but quickly, but doesn't the new discourse need space to actualize hypocrisy? Mm -hmm. You can say community, and everybody knows you really don't mean that. <laughs> I'm sorry, but go ahead. I mean, oh, oh I'm sorry, I'm making it. That's no, I, I was just going to make the stated point about, I mean, how the woke language it pushes your the way that you speak, and it's like you can't just speak the way you speak. You have to say Latin X. You know, I mean, because, yeah, I mean, because some <laughs> academics trying to create like a completely uproot you from any civilization and just put you in this professional managerial bourgeois class, which doesn't have any history, doesn't have any roots. The only, uh, it only is rooted to money and the money that it makes through nonprofits and grants. Um, yeah, but it really is an attack on people for the way you speak is backwards because you don't use pronouns. You, know? you don't you don't say Latin X. You know you don't uh, acknowledge. Yeah, and also the idea of language as oppressive. Uh, that is an attack on people. It's an attack on the people. Yeah, like your yeah no no your language yeah the way that you speak the way that you are is violent. Uh, Monopoly capital is not violence, but your language is violence. Um, yeah, it's just really an inversion of everything that constitutes struggle and the way of thinking about struggle. Um, yeah. It's just real quick. My question is just like, what happens to people if we can't talk? Right. You know, if, if we, one, it's not just if we can't even talk, but if our speaking is not of ourselves in the same in the same understanding in the same historical tradition say paul robeson was talking about his grandfather and yeah, what yeah, yeah. Oh, we, no this is true though because it's not just his grandfather it's our you know what i'm saying yeah. so what happens to a people to younger people specifically with it's completely out of touch. And if we have to one, make something new, two, don't or like or like two, I mean, don't know where to go to look to to be able to understand each other. Yeah. I mean the other thing I just want to say is we learned a new language through coming to the preschool. Right. I didn't know how to use those words peace, humanity, freedom, justice, love. I didn't know what those words meant. And when I learned those words through these writers and through everybody here and through the, you know, the generations of struggle, then I learned how to talk to my own people. Right. Exactly. That's the yeah. thing because the way they train you, you get further and further away. You don't know how to talk. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really deep. It's those words are like, I mean, yeah, and you Died for them. Mm -hmm. It changes. You know, it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's nothing to 
from that is that with every new generation, everyone's, well, when you're a baby, you're like tabla rasa plus a bunch of certain things that are, that you're inheriting. And, you know, you're learning everything from scratch from your environment around you. So, like, I think that that's, that's like almost like a common knowledge thing that people try to take full advantage of. Um, and, you know, you could say that over the course of your whole life, you're learning languages. Um, and, you know, I feel like, uh, well, I, I could just end it there. But you I feel like, um, you know, uh, I, one of the points that I wanted to bring across is that with every new uh, generation, there's new languages being made. Um, so, like, from things as benign as saying, like, on fleet to, you know, this new wokeism stuff and, uh, you know, how people are kind of enforcing and policing how people should, should talk. Um, and I guess the difference that I want to highlight here is that there's, you know, there's this, like, from anywhere between, like, speaking the Queen's language to speaking new speak to speaking, you know, all, all of these top-down enforcements of what language should be versus learning language for the purpose of actually expressing life and what is actually just useful. Um, you know, maybe it is useful to say that my clothes are on fleek today, you know, but like, Or 
Robin D'Angelo, uh, White Fragility. This pedagogy of the elite is a politics of authoritarianism. I, I you know, uh, as against the way we're talking here, I was, um, well, I just come out and say it. I was a little bit um, turned off by Gerald Horn on the panel yesterday. Good friend. I mean, we've known it. I ain't going to even say how long. Y'all glad you'd be, you know, in the, in the Undertaker's <laughs> But um, it was a it was a it was a, a type of performance of someone who feels politically uh, neutered, politically uh, without any um, power, uh, not just but without any impact politically. Now this is a person that's wrote, written many books on you know some very important questions, um, but yet he felt a need to perform as though, now he, he sent his comments in as a, um, you know, like a video. And uh, I don't know that he realized that he wasn't talking to more than 35 people, but, <laughs> It was, you know, we must fight and Calm down. Please. It was pre recorded. It was pre recorded. Oh, really? Yeah. It was even worse. I mean, why are you not? But the point, I think, is that a lot of people think that you cannot speak. To the masses of people in reasonable tones, talking about tones and language, that you have to appear to be exhorting them and teaching them and uh, inspiring them to do something that they wouldn't normally or naturally do. And I can do this because I am highly educated. Or you take candy. And this is where I want to bring up something, and it is a um, this this I this whole practice of hypocrisy that you talk in ways that are on the one side very rigid, but then there's an ambiguity there. There's a space for you. To say, well, I really didn't mean that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was really only jiving. Mm -hmm. You understand? Let me give you an example in candy. <laughs> people think because he was one of my students that I have a particular interest in him. That's not the case. My interest in him is this is a dude that rose faster than Einstein did. <laughs> in other words, in two years, this cat commands the, the national stage, and if they got anything to do with it, the international stage when it comes to discourse on race. In other words, if you believe the hype, 
he is more important than Du Bois, Robeson, uh, uh, Baldwin, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Martin, anybody, that he has trumped everything. And it's all hype. But you read it. And, and of course, reading is a part of deconstructing uh, what is being done with language. And I very much agree with Robeson and your interpretation, Serafina, that Robeson <laughs> shows that the African and Chinese languages were honest. They were honest. They were morally constructed among people, growing out of people's desire to communicate honestly, not a language of the thief, not a language of the cheater. You see what I'm saying? And I'm certain it's cheaters in Nigeria, thieves in China and Nigeria, but the language is not set up to do that. For example, Kendi makes a statement in his book that if you hate racism, you'll hate capitalism. Now, I saw a YouTube where Kat was saying, this proves that Tucker Carlson's statement that Kennedy is a communist is true, right? right, right, right. Now, okay, if you don't know that much, and how many people have the opportunity to be in a free school where issues are discussed like this? You would say, oh, wow, I gotta be down with Kendi because he's anti-capitalist. But is he anti-capitalist? Or is he merely attempting, as he titles his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, to teach the capitalist ruling class how to shed the skin of racism. Because the book, he being a evangelical Christian and a Afrocentric, you mix those two together, it's only garbage that comes out. <laughs> so he mixes them, this is where he lives. So the question becomes, he is trying to save capitalism not ended. He is in the name of fighting racism, really trying to hold on to the system that inevitably connects racism and class exploitation to the capitalist system. A monumentally hypocritical, immoral move. You, I mean, forgive me if I'm a little more. You know, read Du Bois, then we do Robeson. The thing that moves you is the honesty. If I'm wrong, correct me. If I'm right, you know, I think this is it. My investigations into language show this. Moral. But this current discourse is profoundly immoral, and it is set up for that purpose. Just, just my last point. 
these terms like we talked about settler colonial capitalism and racial capitalism. I, I saw a discussion, of, a YouTube discussion with Jared Ball, a cat that I know. Uh, I don't think he likes me these days. It's very interesting. And another friend of mine named um, Frank Chapman. Frank Chapman was a member of the Communist Party with the Communist Party. He was, as a young guy, convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment in Missouri, and the party fought to free him, and he was freed. And he's written a book, and he claims to be upholding historical materialism, the method of Marxism, as it were, or as he sees it. And he says, uh, and I'm certain we'll all find, Robeson will find this interesting, as will Du Bois that he takes Marx, an abstract, an abstract statement of Marx. It's not, our, it's not our social ideas that determine our social being. It is our social being that determines our social ideas, something like that, mm -hmm. our social consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, that the material conditions of life determine the conditions of thought. Mm -hmm. And then Frank makes this statement. And here you will discover the contradiction uh, in his, uh, what he sets up. He makes, he says that it was only, and this, he said, this is not the case among any of the lower species, except human beings, right? That we create the material conditions of production of life, and that determines our consciousness. But here's the problem. You know, it's like Du Bois, uncaused causes. But isn't it the consciousness that made possible the production of material conditions of life? So it is difficult to make an absolute in this regard. You have to see both dialectically interacting constantly. Sometimes indeed, it is the material condition, technology that determines human consciousness. Other times, human consciousness, and this is our hope. This is what we fight for. The elevation of human consciousness can alter the conditions of material life. That just because you are poor and black doesn't predetermine what you will do. And that is Martin Luther King. You know what I'm saying? That there can be a leap in consciousness. That is the revolutionary project. Every revolutionary has asserted that freedom is not, quote, natural to one's existence in oppression. It's not natural to do what Gandhi did, to do what Mao did, to do what King, to do what any freedom for. It is abnormal. And that's why when they attacked Robeson and locked him up, attacked King, attacked anybody, they said, you are operating outside of the normal consensus of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Racial capitalism. 
if ever there was a concept to obscure and divert attention away from capitalism, it is the concept racial capitalism. You know what I'm saying? Let me just make one, one last point in there. It is a kind, you know, in other words, it is language in a period where you have to obscure everything, where there has to be dishonesty, where one doesn't want to read books because you say, oh, before you even open the book, this is a dishonest book, it's published by so-and-so, this person teaches at a so-and-so university. I don't want to be bothered with it because I don't feel like being lied to yet again in 350 pages. I know I, I, I suffered from that. I, you know, I felt terribly abused over the summer. You know, when I had to read those books and review them. I mean, I haven't, my soul has not recovered from that. <laughs> I felt abused and I, I don't recommend that people read books these days. <laughs> you know, that's a, but racial capitalism is one of the great hypocrisies as a conceptual framework. It sounds so appealing, so if, so woke. You know, I'm woke. Racial capitalism. <laughs> you did what I'm saying? It sounds so, you know, uh, elite, so gentrifiable. <laughs> I mean, it really, it's so appealing to a young person. You know what I'm saying? But it does not help you understand capitalism. It does the opposite. First of all, it says nothing new. When was, Mark said it, capitalism came into the world dripping with blood and dirt. Oh, so you put, you know, what have you told us? Nothing. Nothing. First of all, it avoids what is fundamental, the crisis of capitalism, or better yet, finance capitalism, mm -hmm. which brings us to the first hundred days of Joe Biden, <laughs> or should I say his administration, because we don't know whether he's coming or going. <laughs> In a matter of one year, the U.S. government to keep functioning and to keep the masses of working people seduced and quiet, have borrowed now, with, if this next bill passes, somewhere close to $8 trillion in one year. That is on an economy that is $20 trillion. So in what? This is borrowing. The problem, and I don't want to go to go into this list, the great crisis and great problem of this economic policy is that you inflate the amount of currency in the economy. That is what inflation means. It's not just prices going up. Prices go up because there's more money. You know, the big example of this too, 
The big example of this is Germany in the 1920s. Happy days are here again. We're going to spend like it's 1999. Party. You know, drink whiskey, wine, and do opium if you get it. <laughs> but what happens? You put so much money into the economy that prices rise. And sometimes when it gets unhinged, it becomes hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. Now, for an empire with 800 military bases, the uh, the decline uh, or the uh, devaluing of the dollar because of inflation means that what happens to the dollar as the reserve currency? In other words, central banks, even in Europe, will say, look, I don't want this money. That's going to be less tomorrow than it is today. Give me the yuan. <laughs> I want, uh, can I call up the Chinese central bankers? <laughs> this is how an empire unravels. And I'm saying that, yeah, does racial capitalism help, help me understand? <laughs> nope. I don't even get to discuss it. So if I want to save the capitalist ruling class, I educate them. Your system is a racial system. Get woke. And now they're all a big corporation. We're woke. We're anti-white supremacy. You anti-white supremacy? Oh yeah. Uh look, Joe Biden. He's the first anti-white supremacy president. 20 years ago, he, he fought for a bill to lock more young black men up than was enslaved in the 1850s, but he's my man. <laughs> because I'm talking about racial capital, in other words. I, I, I don't want to keep up. My point is, I agree completely. A concept of moral hypocrisy the first judge of the human being, and this is, I don't care whether it's the boys or, or king, the moral imperative. I want to know, are you honest? Because like Seraphina said, language connects people. You know, your word, like you said, your word is your bond. I can believe you, Seraphina. You know what I'm saying? If there's not that, there can't be community. If you're going to march on, on Monday talking about uh, defund the police and Black Lives Matter, and then on Wednesday, you're gentrifying people out of their neighborhood. I mean, who do I believe? What of you I believe? So I'm saying that the moral imperative is the judge of the human being. There is, and this is Divya's book, there is a spiritual foundation to what it is to be a human being. And you cannot pare it down to this jive pedagogy of the elite that, that looks upon the masses of people as errant and, and misbehaved children. 
and a 23-year-old just graduated from Harvard can tell a 60-year-old woman who's been working for sub-minimum wage all of her life at a nursing home, you are white supremacist, and I'm going to point my finger in your face. This is the crisis of the moral framework of American society, and it is as important as the crisis of the system, but then it is connected to the crisis of language and knowledge and obscurity. Oh, no, Joe, I mean, Emil, then, no, no, Joe, Johan was first, and then Emil. Uh, just some uh, comments from Facebook. Uh, Manuski says, I also think language is needed, as needed, and purely for communicative purposes, is how the language is mostly studied. And this is so different from language expressing the beauty and striving of people, as Seraphia mentioned. Jeremiah Kim writes, I recently read an article by a University of Chicago professor about the impact of wokeness on college students, particularly on their writing. He observes that his students are now so molded by all the narratives, slogans, terminology of woke ideology, which is obsessed with personal oppression, that it has actually robbed them of a sense of interiority and selfhood. And as a result, the quality of writing in elite universities has notably declined. So now we have a generation of professional managerial class who are disconnected from any real solidarity to others, but also unable to think for themselves. I think. You can also see this in the shoddy intellectual work produced by celebrated academics like Kendi and Robin DiAngelo, or the current crop of institutionally recognized artists and poets whose work is essentially uncreative, dogmatic application of a critical theory lecture, ethnic studies slash feminist studies course. And, and people like when you said racial capitalism, it sounds objectifiable. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Emil, and then you know um, it's, it's really interesting. We've, we've talked a lot here at the preschool about the disregard of the well-being and safety of children, yeah. but so much is tied up with that is also the disregard and the, and the disrespect uh, this culture has to their elders. Um, you know, like this uh, this what I think we're taught to believe now in this society is the future is now, and the technological revolutions is where we're going, and so you know. Your grandfather, your grandma has nothing to get offer you because they can't even they can't even use your technology. You know? um, and I, I was really thinking because I, I I tuned into the Paul Robeson thing last night as well, uh, and I was definitely struck by by Joe Horn's um, just his manner of speaking um, and, and and speaking about history and and the society in such a wooden way, such a wooden you know uh, uh, black and white very. Um, you know, not much to have a conversation there when you're just saying this is terrible and horrible and there's nothing, you know, the, our history has nothing to really benefit uh, in this way. And it, I was just thinking of the contradictions or, or the, the differences I had with, um, you know, hearing uh, James Lawson's speech. Okay. Um, and he came into the building and we, we had him uh, City Hall speak. Um, and he, you know, he, he said uh, in a very soft and humble way, you know, I look around this beautiful, uh, room that I'm in, it's filled with all these beautiful portraits of all these figures of, of the different leaders of the city. Um, and it's beautiful and it's touching, but I also feel like, in many ways, it's like in a mausoleum. You know, it's, it's all, all men. Um, and, you know, he wasn't he wasn't disparaging that. He was saying that, that is a part of our history as well. 
Um, but that really opens the door for having a much wider conversation than just, um, you know, what I feel like we're taught in this, in this post-truth age, which is, you know, the, the society at large has the truth and you just need to follow this dictum from above. Um, yeah, I, I just, um, I really feel like there's a sincere disrespect uh, we, we, we have, uh, generally speaking, towards our elders. I mean, I, I was just, just thinking of another time I was, I was in um, my, my car not too long ago sitting at a traffic stop, and there was this, old, this older black man who was kind of hobbling to get across the street. And there was this young um, white 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 uh, person who had you know they had their Black Lives Matter um, face covering. <laughs> well, they're taking a picture of I guess the city behind this man who's struggling to get get across the street. Um, and I just thought it, it was just such an interesting moment to capture. Uh, like you know, here's this person who in almost any other society you'd see an old person who's struggling across the street, you go help them. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. You're mesmerized by the beauty of the technology behind you, and there's this, there's this, um, this sacred. Uh, uh, there's really, there's nothing. You know, you, you can only learn uh, from our from our elders, from our from our family members. There's, you can't get that from anywhere else. That source is very very unique in its in its, in its origin, um, and if we if we pull ourselves away from that. Um, where are we where are we go? Oh, um, I think it's interesting. I'll get to my point right after this. So what you're saying? Oh, <laughs> um, Emil, about the this relation between the the younger and the older generations. I think capitalism has gotten in between that very deliberately. Because the labor market is segmented now according to age, and all, every year you have an incoming, you know, uh, group of graduates into the economy, and and then you have this crisis of retirement, right? Uh, so it's like this bottleneck effect, and these this two groups, the very poor amongst the elderly and the very poor amongst the students, are kind of almost being put together. Maybe in a good way, because now we can see the contradictions of this whole thing. But the other thing I'm thinking of is um, um, language and literature. Because, I mean, one of the things is, I mean, language is more than just utilitarian. It should, I think, be learned from Du Bois. It's an art. And when we read his novels, and I think this is the hope for the English language, at least, through the voice, because he uses it in such an incredibly new way, sort of like Tabor uses it. You know, he's fluent in multiple languages, but as Du Bois was. But I mean, like what he says in such a little he who tell a tale must look towards three ideas to tell it well to tell it beautifully and to tell the truth the first is the gift of god the second is the gift of jesus the third is the reward of honesty in the quest of the silver fleece there is little i mean divine or ingenious but at least i have been honest in no fact or picture have i consciously set down aught the counterpart of which I have not seen or known. 
and whatever the finished picture may lack of completeness, this last is due now to the storyteller, now to the artist, but never to the herald of the truth. Mm -hmm. And it's like the art of storytelling. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, stories are passed down from the elders to the children. You know, this is a crisis of civilization because in, in antiquity, like how the ancient sacred texts are passed on, they're from the teacher to the student. And the relation between a teacher and a student, as it is said, um, is the relationship between an ancestor and the, you know, the, the, you know, the child, the immortal child, if you will. So we see now it's not about telling the truth. Even in literature, I think literature, modern 21st century literature, we don't have any epic stories really. Because look at the reality, it is so worth cowardly. We don't have anything we will sacrifice our life for. And um, here's Du Bois, you know, Galileo Galilei. You know, what the truth, you know, are you willing to lose your reputation, your name, your career? Are you? And he's just, it's a challenge. Um, all, like, so much of this just makes me think about how, like, the boy, like, talking about this idea of, like, responsibility to one another, um, how kind of devoid I feel like a lot of many Americans feel they are to each other. It made me think about how, um, People are like afraid of each other, sure, but people I think are also really afraid of themselves in America. Like this, um, this whole like I think it kind of traces back to it's like an anti-historicism. But when you're kind of taught history through the veins of we're all just these like primeval little animals wanting to naturally dominate or hurt each other, and there's no such thing as true altruism because everyone just wants to. It, it is like such a tragedy that spirituality and humanity are so removed from the narrative because like you look at um you look at far over something I want to be African and it's so devoid of this ego and, and so full of this giving yourself over to something greater and compare that to I feel our artists my age who are so empty feeling the feeling to take from all these different things and brand themselves it's like as an asian artist uh, uh <laughs> you know hashtag stop asian hate so i just the contextualization of their struggle like i was just like generations and generations of your ancestors struggling to give you a better humanity and you've decided to interpret that as my struggle is uh man no one's like in my YouTube videos, <laughs> Michelle Venmo me and made me feel better about that. <laughs> but it's so, it's so empty, and I, I think it is so miserable. I mean, people are so miserable now here. Like everyone, so many people on our generation are so like unhappy and self-loathing, mm -hmm. hating, and they don't even acknowledge on a deeper level why that is, why they feel this kind of constant antagonism in themselves, and by extension, they can't fathom 
another person really like cares about them or really wants to connect with them. Um, mm -hmm. And so how can you make like responsible group of people to each other when you're not responsible to yourself like in any way? Right. Oh, oh. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Um, on, so this, on the dishonesty kind of what more is hypocrisy was making me think about this like how infectious this is and something I'm like very often shocked by especially in academia is how established professors, especially people who did all their studies in India, and how when they come here, they, like one of the favorite things to complain about is the racist language of working class people. They, their favorite thing to complain about is, you know, the, from the way the workers talk to them, and which are mostly working class white people. And at the same time, they would complain about their behavior, which is simply in, in conversation, in language, but at the same time, the way they treat their students, especially if they did their PhDs in India, it just shows how much hatred they have for the education system that produced them. When it it seems to me, it's it's very clear for most people who you know have been teaching assistants at all these universities and have taught in the undergraduate courses here. It's very clear the sort of the difference of you know the educational level in undergraduate studies here and in the good places back in India. There is a difference in the responsibility that we take back home. And this hypocrisy seems to jar out all the time because they would treat their students as um, you know as as though uh, they are by default lazy. They're by default, you know, like not interested in, in, in the work themselves because they have come from this backward education system, while at the same time they were the American system. No, I mean the ones who came from India and you know did their PhDs, and they're compared to the education system here. And it's fascinating how easily these Indian professors would complain um, about the education system back in India, which really produced them. They really have they owe all that they are to that. This is interesting. If I could just uh, ask a question. You say they come here and they come here denouncing India, which produced them, as in order to make themselves be a part of the American elite, that America is the best place in the world. I know I'm from uh, a ghetto country, but now uh, because I am so great, I have risen to be an honorary white person, an Aryan, if you will. This is a and every and you talk about their their denunciation of the white worker uh, from a position of elitism here, but they denounce the Indian workers. It's like they I mean it's it's really all greed. And you know, I think they are constantly trying to pretend that they're white. But you're not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, right. But no, but no. But, but, but can I ask you a question? Uh, have you read? I I got this article from uh, Nandita, the um, the Dalit. I put quotes around this. Uh, at Harvard. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you read his recent article uh, supporting uh, uh, 
Isabel Wilkerson's book on past. I have seen some of his interviews, not mm -hmm. his articles. Yes, yeah. And everything I read that, I mean, because um, I wasn't able to read the whole thing as I, you know, I'm still, you know, suffering or trying to heal from the summer. <laughs> but he's, uh, and I put quotes around because you ain't no Dallas when you overhear money. Uh -huh. Let's be real. And at Harvard, you're not a Dallas. You're not an untouchable, you know? And, but see, then he wants to make this, I mean, I don't know if everybody knows the argument that America is a caste system and the black people are the, the untouchables and all white people are the Brahmins. So the poorest white person is the oppressor of the richest black person. In other words, a poor white worker making $12 an hour because he is in the elite caste, or she is in the elite caste, he or she is an oppressor of the billionaire over Winfrey. and morally 
obscures history and the current conditions of Christ. But I'm sorry, May. No, no, I was just going to say that. I mean, this is a moment when it's not a deepening of a caste system or whatever. It's a deepening of like the class contradiction. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it's like what is happening to white workers? I mean, I'm just reading a lot about home ownership, but just the complete nobody is able to buy a home anymore. I mean, that used to be okay, redlining, okay, but no, that's all disappearing. I mean, white people are losing all of that. I mean, more. And so, who is who is helping them explain what is actually going on? Um, yeah, and nobody. It's just another way of. Um, uh, yeah, and I mean, also this victimhood on the other hand of, I do want to read a quote by Baldwin, um, which I think gets at what we're saying. For intellectual activity, according to me, is and must be disinterested. For intellectual activity, according to me, is and must be disinterested. The truth is a two-edged sword. And if one is not willing to be pierced by that sword, even to the extreme of dying on it, then all of one's intellectual activity is a masturbatory delusion and a wicked and dangerous fraud. Uh, but uh, anyway, going back to this Baldwin quote, 
actually, this is from an essay. This essay he's talking about McCarthyism, and in this, he's referring the intellectuals referring to are the liberal intellectuals under McCarthyism. So there's a great precedent for uh, what we're discussing now, uh, and uh, with these academics. And I'd like to read Kurva's comment. She said, she says, I think universities are at the helm of a movement to turn language from a means by which people can communicate with each other and come together to a political tool for the ruling class. Some of the mandatory trainings for employees, for instance, actively try to dictate the language you should use if you are to be accepted. One example, the annual harassment training that we are forced to complete in my school basically said you cannot use the word color in any contact, uh, context because it hurts people. Uh, this way, they try to ensure that there is less honest discourse about color, and for that matter, any important issue of the day. Uh, and I think going back to the, uh, tying to Biden's first hundred days, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion from these liberal academic intellectuals about the violence of language. In a lot of ways, they're the ones who've given uh, the ruling class the ability to weaponize language. Right. So if you look at the media coverage of the first hundred days of Biden, and you, of course you can even stretch it further back, these words you hear: racism, racial equity, civil rights. These these, these things are all being used to justify uh, basically Biden and the Democratic Party taking over the entire voting system of the United States. This law, which was passed in Georgia, which is meant to regulate mail-in ballots, which played a very bad role in the 2020 election. Any criticism or anybody justifying that law or criticizing how mail-in ballots were conducted or saying they need to regulate it is de facto, you're supposedly a racist, you're attacking the legacy of Martin Luther King, they're invoking the legacy of the civil rights movement to justify the Democratic Party having a monopoly over the electoral system. Uh, another point, this infrastructure package that Doc was talking about, something like $8 trillion. That's exactly the language. What is infrastructure? <laughs> one, of, one of the Democratic senators who's a supporter of this bill tweeted, infrastructure is not just physical. Infrastructure is human. Infrastructure is caregiving. Infrastructure is page six days. Infrastructure is X, Y, Z, which means they could justify infrastructure to be anything they like. I, if we read the fine print of this bill, which I doubt anyone will, Huge pill. I'm, I'm sure some of the $8 trillion is earmarked for war purposes, which I'm sure is considered to be infrastructure. Right? Uh, similarly, any news about foreign policy, the language they're using, genocide again, China's committing genocide, Bashar al Assad is a, a brutal dictator. Uh, you, you know, it's just the inundation uh, in the minds of the people using this language. Who's a killer? killer? Absolutely. Coincidentally, yesterday, some of us were watching Oliver Stone's Putin interviews, and then we were watching when Oliver Stone went on the Colbert show, which is one of the big shows on late night TV, and the way that Colbert talked to him, and then later he also talked to Tulsi Gabbard in the same way, that before you could even start a conversation, it's, do you denounce Vladimir Putin as a killer? Why didn't you, why didn't you confront him on this? Why didn't you talk about freedom of the press and abduction journalists? So it's they, the woke elite, basically. This, this state which is a woke elite state at this point, in which all the generals of the deep state are woke, as are the TV hosts, as are the professors, and, you know, as a central intelligence agency, everybody's woke. This wokeness is a weapon. And uh, I think the problem is people don't realize how much things have changed. I think this is the, the liberals of today, I think are different than the liberals of the 60s and 70s. The liberals of today, 
are the basically the extreme wing of reaction uh, in the United States. And this language is being heavily weaponized uh, everywhere you look to, to justify uh, their rule. And right now, their priority in the next 100 days, I think, of the Biden administration is to further use this, first to consolidate the entire state and all power in their hands from a federal to state to local level, and then two, to use it, mobilize it against all forms of resistance, justifying them as being problematic, racist, fascist, insurrection. Right, insurrection. Go ahead, Tibby, and then Carla. I was just saying today, you know, it's what like Mark said about history second time around is farce. And you see that it's, you know, like, oh, uh, history, what Mark says about history as the second time around is farce. Mm -hmm. And you see that with, you know, this bizarre invocation of the voting rights thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, to what end, you know? Um, and the second thing is with the going back to caste and what you said. Um, about um, this complete misinterpretation of the Indian caste system. I think is at the heart of this. I mean, of course, there are Brahmins and, you know, and there's these four castes, right? The Brahmins who are the teachers, uh, the Kshatriyas who are the warriors, the merchants, right? And then the servants. But then what the issue is, Gandhi always said, is we're not trying to tear down the labor structure. We're trying to eliminate untouchability. I mean, every society is, is, is and what King says, you know, if you're a sweeper, sweep the streets with dignity and pride in your what you do because you're serving, a, you know, your community. That's community. And it just goes to show it's like the ideal of being a Brahmin, and I'm not saying all Brahmins are right, and maybe they've forgotten their duty, but the caste duty is basically to serve your civilization. So like, if you're a Brahmin, you're, you're caste, it's not to make money. Like in the ideal of, I, I think maybe how Gandhi and, uh, you know, other leaders uh, imagined it was, you know, perform the duty with purity and humility. Um, and when Swami Vivekananda came to the West, he said it, I think, best. He said, I would rather have a caste of dollars, oh, sorry, I would rather have a caste of purity and self-sacrifice rather than a caste of dollars. Because here you are, you know, people, you know, like the Wilson book and so on, you're criticizing racial capitalism and racial caste. And Du Bois actually did that already. But it's like, well, what about the cash of dollars? Because in America, it's the millionaires and the billionaires who are the upper caste. I mean, like, it's not these white workers that have the, uh, you know, who don't have any money. So it's like, if we're going to talk about cash, talk about how it works in practice, because it's the task of dollars. That's how, and it's like, you don't even need to be, a, you don't need to know anything. You just, you just make a bunch of money and you don't know any history. You don't know any literature. You don't know any music, but suddenly you can have whatever you want, you know, and that's the ideal. The ideal is the millionaire, not the worker. 
as we talked about with Bertha and Nina. Okay. I think this discussion has made me think a lot about yeah, like language and the language people, but also seeing like that. I guess the absolute devastation that comes from like the way we use language now, like this wokeness that's found in university. Could speak up a little bit, I'm sure. Yeah. I think it's I don't know. I mean there's a tension between the fact that I mean people talk about state violence or, you know, like I think it's very common now to talk about, especially with like these different anti Asian uh sentiment that people are like creating whole meanings about. But like the rhetoric of state violence being used by people who are like the most violent creating that thing. But like also thinking about how people see this as a way out rather than ideology that is progressive, how like they've been absolutely devastated by it too. It's, I mean, some of the most incomplete and like hurt people I've seen are in activism, like are like seeing, you know, trying to get change in the world. But then they're just completely, I think, lost and like just lost in themselves and they can't really find a way out. And the only way to help is to be like constantly, yeah, almost airing the sense of self righteousness. But then, like, if you can't even relate to people on a human level, then I mean, where does that leave you to? And I think when we were talking about the white workers also, I mean, it made me think a lot about how I started reinterpreting my history growing up in like Pennsylvania, like through the lens of, you know, identity politics and microaggression. And I remember this very small moment. I mean, I don't think it's all that significant. Like, I remember running into a construction worker one day, and then he asked me if I was Korean and if I liked kimchi. And I remember thinking, like, wow, this is so racist. You think it's that good. But really, I mean, it's not all that bad. It's, I'm not Korean, but I do like kimchi. <laughs> Even and like they talk and walk like black people, and, and 
it's not like the black people are against that. Like they'll take them in as their own because there is you judge a person by their deeds instead of their identity. And um, I mean Asian people the same way. Like Asian people have been taken in by the black community, and um, that's why like when like the anti-Trump movement came around, like it was really difficult to just demonize these working class white people because I saw that I grew up with some of them, you know, and I can't, I'm not going to turn my back on them and just say like, oh, like they're, they're criminals, you know, and um, even with like, okay, like when uh, a black woman from a university is like screaming at me, talking about like trying to kill me, I just can't be guilty because I know white people that's blacker than you. Like, I mean, that's, that's just the truth. Like, like I, I'm just not phased by all of that. So, yeah. Also, like, the fundamental assumption of a revolutionary is that people will do the right thing if they know the truth. You know, I mean, the just to, to be trained to believe something other than that is, I mean, it's like it's completely counter-revolutionary to believe like in the that people are are just terrible and backwards. And I mean, the thing about also just we were listening to Trump's latest interview. His language is just so ugly, but it's so good. <laughs> it's clear, it's clear. But it is ugly. He's like, well. Well, that's not good for America. That's bad for America. Of course, of course. And it's just—I don't know. There's just this satisfaction, and it really is the way you find beauty. Like it's, it's something beautiful because it's flourished, and you know, it, it has it uses all these fancy words, or is it beautiful because it's expressing something real? And he was even saying, yeah, like you know, you might be canceled, but there is a way that people who tell the truth can be heard. Um, so yeah, yeah, I just uh, get those points. I think also just going back to what you said, Johan, about how much the, the liberal class has changed um, between the 60s and the 70s. And I, I don't think since the 30s, when it was redefined by the New Deal. Right. And it's just how, I don't think it's a coincidence that these books and theories be it racial capitalism or sort of America as a caste society are also coming out and don't recognize that how much things have changed outside the liberal class too. Like we've talked about a lot in preschool, how race has changed, how you know the relationship of blacks and whites has changed. And I think that, you know, I mean, people like throwing around terms like reactionary or counter-revolutionary sometimes, but this is literally the definition of counter-revolution, like coming up with theories that sort of say that nothing can change precisely at the moment when things are changing. And it's, I mean, it's sort of like even thinking to Lenin and how many even Bolsheviks resisted his, his position that there actually could be a revolution at a particular moment. And, you know, it, it, it often is hard to actually talk about when things are changing and, and you know, but it just doesn't help matters to have this slew of books coming out right when there is that kind of change happening. I'd like to say something like, yeah, I just feel like, right, um, it's, I'm, well, it's my first time really speaking of these books, so I'm just going to try to formulate my thoughts, but I've just been thinking on, um, 
yeah, just Vincent's point, but just trying to synthesize everything that we've been saying and just making me realize how much appreciation I have for Robeson and his time. How we're talking about the, the counter-revolutionary spirit of the time, the woke language, all these different things, and how if so, one thing that we would like to go back to would be the 60s and 70s or this idea of the clarity that people had in this time. And it goes back to, I think, what we've been saying around um, the appreciation that, like, the times that produced the Robeson, the times that produced revolutionary leadership, like that that we saw at the Bandung Conference and how much um, all these, yeah, it's just, but also how much, like, those peoples also exerted um, their will and changed those times themselves, you know, like that idea of the law and, and chance, just like what produced them, but also how they produced those times. Right, right, it just reminds right, right. me so much of what um, King was saying in our previous discussion um, last week around like the context of when he was speaking, and just that was a time of world revolution, and like there's and the, the, what you had to do, and like the, the responsibility of Black America to you know, push America back on the course of the right side of world revolution. And I feel like that's what makes Robeson so special. He could really see himself at this gathering in 1955 in Indonesia, right. alongside um, all these revolutionary leaders of the anti-colonial struggles of um, Asia and Africa. And, you know, we talked about, Emily brought up the fact that the speeches that um, those leaders had given Nehru, Nasser, all these people, they would keep referencing the fact that Asia and Africa were the cradle of human civilization. And then like the fact that Du Bois and Robeson had so desperately wanted to go to those con that conference, but the shame that the U.S. Department of State had revoked their passports and to cut off that link. And it's, and it's really... Yeah, it's really a shame because they really saw themselves as a, like a home there in Asia and Africa. And it just makes me think that, I mean, it goes back to like those leaders and people like the Boys and Robeson knew so much better, like what those words of peace and um, civilization and unity and responsibility really mean as opposed to now. So again, like their understanding of language, but also just as a framework. Um, that we don't even, I feel like the consciousness of the people today has been so watered down to not take those things seriously, to not take civilization seriously. And it just kind of reminds me of how important the work that we're doing now is the ideological struggle and how we might have the chance to inject that kind of spirit into um, today's times and to maybe go back to that and maybe see what are the potential. It, it reminds me again of like, yeah, understanding our times, our, our ability to analyze this moment and the processes, the laws, but also revive that like incalculable human spirit of civilization for this time because we really need it. And because, uh, we have examples to look to. And yeah, yeah. Even, I mean, even Du Bois' definition at the end of Russian America, where he says the greatest cause of war is the degradation of the worker, that clear definition of war and what an insurance for peace would mean. And instead, nowadays you get racial capitalism. <laughs> but I mean, Du Bois says the two best examples, or like the largest examples and instances of the degradation of the worker, would be colonialism and then the slave trade, which we imperialism and also to say capitalism um 
and instead nowadays the best we get is racial capitalism which no one knows it's like you said the language of obscurity and just in terms of also the separation of the white worker and black Amer and the black worker in america i work for a union and it's it's amazing how much actually the white workers and black workers would much rather talk to each other than talk to the elite staff of the union <laughs> and there are so many instances where you have actually there's a common language they have in some ways from the experiences of being so degraded by capitalism in this country where like i will hear a black woman in philly say each one teach one if you want to reach one and all the white women are like yes yes and the staff are confused what that means or like they all say amen you know they'll say something and if they agree they say amen it's like a shared language somehow um and there's a huge contradiction, like even in Pennsylvania, and in some ways Pennsylvania is a great environment to observe all of these contradictions because you have cities, but then you have rural areas, you have white worker, black worker, the Midwest influence, the Southern influence. And like, like you were saying, much of a huge program in my union is to train the white workers to be less racist. And you, they resent it. They're so resented because what about their husbands who are unemployed? No energy jobs, no construction jobs. They're the breadwinners of the families, the men, the white men are degraded by the system. Same thing in the cities too. It's a common experience and the only people who actually don't understand that language. They don't understand like how much there is in common despite differences is the, the elite the staff who all have, have PhDs in labor. <laughs> yeah, I think um, what Emily is saying in terms of this unity between white and black workers, I think, and also an example through history where towards the end of his life, King also turned to the poor working class. Um, or if you see at Ben Dung, like the convergence of so many different countries. You see that these people or leaders are coming together um, towards the principles of unity because they understand what actually is the ultimate violence in our society, which is not like, I don't know, like being able to say the right words, but actually the immense poverty that's throughout the world yeah. or right, right, the number, right. the endless number of wars that go on for um, like to dominate uh, the rest of the world. Um, and it's because these people recognize, like whether it's um, and at the level of the workers or at the level of the various countries that came together at Bandung, um, regardless of like whether it's like personal pensions or like regardless of um, uh, certain countries like having pensions that were that ultimately have to occur because um, there's this project of understanding how to live together because it's not as simple as okay like two countries get together and everything's all good actually there's a lot to figure out in the complexities of living together but ultimately what they were focused on is what are the key um key things that they have to work out so that um people themselves can live together uh, and i think that's why um it's so insightful for us because it shows us where we can find unity with others um, and work towards that unity. Heads up, we're going to have to wrap up in the next 10 15 minutes. But one, one comment to Emily's, uh, what Emily was saying Eric Hudson writes, 
to the sister talking, if black and white workers in Alabama trying to unionize would have been able to talk to each other, to each other then the union would have formed. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about the best America, the, the Alabama, the Amazon worker failed union drive. And that is just a real, you see the failed, like you see the hyping of all these movements on social media, all the activists are supporting it. They're calling for Amazon boycotts when the union hasn't even called for it. Um, but then you see the actual concrete failure. I mean, same thing electorally. You see the failure of the Democrats to win actual poor people. They got the mail in the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> they have the mail in the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> but you see the, yeah, I mean, it's really, yeah, yeah. And how much of this is the elite, woke, organized people in power trying to puppeteer, but the masses saying, no, this is not, this is not, this isn't, I mean, it's not the rejection of union as much as it is, it's a rejection of them. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I think. Yeah. Can I just raise one other thing? The first hundred days of Biden and the talk of war and the preparation for war in a way that we hadn't seen it in the previous presidency. You know, uh, granted, um, uh, Trump was crude in many instances. Uh, I think, however, what many people were attracted to, they felt it was honest that he wasn't. Uh, jiving or just trying to uh, fool you. And then, you know, and whatever his beliefs is, then you can debate. It's like listening to Fox News, Tucker Carlson on race. He doesn't have a, he doesn't know what he's talking about, but he is reacting against woke culture, which he sees as an unmitigated attack upon white people because they're white. But he doesn't understand, you know, but, you know, you can deal with people who are honest, but like Rachel Maddow or Joy Reid or um, Anderson Cooper and uh, Don, you know these are frauds. This is a performance. It's not honest. But I think the Achilles heel of the left wing, and I put quotes around this, because you don't know what, I mean, most of the time, whatever somebody defines themselves as, there's no objective standard. A person can say, I'm left. So you got to put a quote around it, because you know, that's what you were saying. There's no objective way to measure whether you're left or not. Now, I think the question of war and peace is so intimately connected, as Emily pointed out, to the question of the fate and future of the working class and of democracy. War is the enemy of the poor, King said. The bombs dropped in Vietnam explode in the ghetto. I mean, this huge and powerful metaphor, which cannot come from the lips of the current civil rights movement as defined by the New York Times. But we are closer to war than we were under Trump. Military exercises have begun on the Korean Peninsula. The US is now more ready to wage war with China in South China Sea and in the 
Taiwan Straits, and we can't believe a damn thing the media here is saying because they lie in order to create a narrative for war. We don't know whether the Chinese are flying jets over Taiwan or not. That's what they say. Uh, and we don't know what their narrative about the South China Sea is. And whatever it is, it is a matter of the Asian nations, including the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, and other countries. It is not a matter for the United States. You know, but we are close to the war. Biden has come into office with what he brought to the office, and that was a, a militarist pro-war uh, uh, group of people. And when they called, when he called Putin a killer, which is to say he is a criminal, and, which, and since he's the head of government, a criminal heading a government that has nuclear weapons. This is dangerous. And then upping tensions with China. China does not want war, doesn't need war. If there was universal disarmament tomorrow, China would be in the front ranks of those disarming because its development is not predicated upon having military bases all over the world. The same with India. The same with most nations of the world. The only reason that nations, other nations throughout the world have armies, the main reason is because of Western imperialism. You take US imperialism off the table, most nations would gladly disarm. And so the United States has an interest in keeping tensions among nations at a very high pitch because it justifies military spending, which slows down the development of nations like India, like Vietnam, like China. And that is policy. But now, the contradictions, as they say, have come home to roost. <laughs> because the, what made it possible for the United States to spend all of this money on 800 military bases around the world is because it could print money at will. It's the, re, the reserve currency means that all trading, for the most part, in the world takes place in dollars. So India want to trade with Vietnam. They don't do it in the Indian or Vietnamese currency. They do it in dollars. Saudi Arabia wants to trade up until recently. Trade with uh, China and oil. They use the petrodollar. So the United States can print money with the knowledge up until recently that the dollar will never decline in price or value because Everybody needs dollars. In other words, the demand is so high. So the value of the dollar remains high. That's how they support these military bases and this huge 
military-industrial complex. And thus, not only can blackmail the rest of the world, but force China, force, and well, the India Chinese, we've got to talk about that, but force every nation of the world to arm itself to basically protect itself against the United States and its multiple machinations. Most nations of the world got the message from the war in Iraq. That was, a, that was a profound lesson. The first one in 1991, where the United States rolled out weapons that most nations had never seen before. This type of high-tech war, which is even more high-tech today. Russia upped its technology in warfare in response to the United States. My last point is this, the struggle for peace and Paul Robeson. One of the weaknesses of the event last night, they don't understand Robeson's concept of fight for peace. They don't, they, they don't, first of all, they think the demand for peace or people who call for peace are either naive or hypocritical. Most here we go again. Leftists, when you say peace, they you know look at you and then sneer behind your back. Right? Oh, that's hypocrisy. That's not honesty. You know, he, he or she doesn't know what they're talking about. Well, we do know what we're talking about, and Robeson knew what he was talking about, and he went to jail because he stood up for nuclear disarmament, for peace. That's why he went to jail. Not because he was woke, not because he was black, not because, yeah. Was Robeson a part of a world movement? As I've often said, the world communist movement was the greatest force for peace in history, perhaps. Robeson was a part of that. Was Robeson a part of the, a member of the Communist Party? I don't know. Some people say yes, some people say no. It's insignificant. It is insignificant. He was part of the world movement for peace, which the communists were in the vanguard of. And if you look at all of his friends, Alpheus Hunton, Dar Dorothy Hunton, Henry Woods, all of these people that he worked on a day-to-day -day basis with, either for African independence or nuclear disarmament, well, they were mainly communists, you know? By letting, now this is where I get back to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And um, a lot of people have accepted this as just a normal outcome of a failed system. Oh, this proves that capitalism is a superior system. Well, I'd like to see the proof. I have not been convinced that the collapse of the Soviet Union is evidence for the superiority of capitalism. Now, if you want to say the rise of China is the argument, is an argument or evidence of the opposite. And then they will say, well, China is a capitalist society. Well, obviously it's not. Or they will say it's a mixed capitalist and state-run society. However, one thing we do know 
it is not this. And, and this is supposed to be the crystallization of the most advanced form of economic, social, and political philosophy in life. China's not this. It's not religious at all. It is not, um, uh, uh, what else? Oh, it doesn't believe in the sovereignty of the individual over the collectivity, you know, uh, and a number of other things. I won't go into that right now. However, it brings us back to the question. And of course, this question weighs on me because I was there at the time of what I consider one of the great crimes in human history. What happened in the Soviet Union? What happened? You know what I'm saying? I mean, dig it. Um, they were building, they had pro structural problems, running economies, um, especially after your, your nation had been destroyed in war and all. I mean, we, we're doing China, we're talking about China. In a lot of ways, you know, we bend over because we say, well, look, what Malinos inherited? 30 some million killed in 15 years, yada, 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 yada. I mean, what did they have to work with? They had very little. You know what I'm saying? Soviet Union, the same thing. And then you can't even get out of one war, and the United States is surrounding your country with military arms and bases and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was terrible. Uh, they were looking for, that's why they supported the peace, the global peace movement. And then Brezhnev dies, Leonid Brezhnev. And in a matter of two years, two successive general secretaries of the Communist Party die. Andropov and Chernyenko. I mean, I don't know that this has ever happened in human history. Within a matter of two years, two of the general secretaries of the Communist Party. I mean, even if they were sick, you can still prop them up. I mean, we've seen that. We'll look at our president. And he got to say, you know, he could say, well, look, I'll take the job, just prop me up. <laughs> but they died. Both of them had heart disease, advanced, some bullshit. And then the cat that gets into power is suddenly the golden boy of the West. What happened? It was not the normal course. No nation destroys itself from the leadership level like that. There was no mass movement calling for the breakup of the Soviet Union. There was no mass movement for Gorbachev's slogans, uh, Glasnost and Perestroika. And I read the Jive book, and it's Jive, <laughs> written for Western audience. You understand? The cat goes to Cuba, and says to Fidel, look, I'm cutting off all aid, all trade, fuck y'all. I mean, literally said that. And Fidel said, now we're dealing with a double blockade. The Soviet Union has blockaded us, as has the United States. And we wanted to, that, I know that shortened Fidel's life. 
Because what they did to survive was unbelievable. But hometown went down there laughing and smiling. I'll never forget it. Cut them off. These are long-standing arrangements. Then he cuts North Korea off. Boom. They go into a depression of economic decline and, and starvation and shit. They built back. I mean, unbelievably. But this cat. And then he says, well, look, we're going to cut off all the Eastern European countries, you know, and, and the military alliance, which stood off, was stood NATO down, you know, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was formed. And then the socialist countries formed their military alliance in defense against the aggression of the West. Okay, so you go and cut all that off. Jack, when are you going to stop? I mean, you look like you on the other side. You know what I'm saying? It's like a cat you invite into your crib. And you feed him, you build him up and everything. And then all of a sudden, he's coming with a machete trying to kill you. <laughs> the truth is, Western intelligence has penetrated the highest levels on the entire of the Soviet A bit of truth. That was not a normal unraveling. That was what we call an inside job. Gorbachev is, was, and will die as a traitor to his country. He was operating on behalf of Western intelligence. He ideologically destroyed the country, disarmed the party, and then walked away from it all and handed it over to the drunk. Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin was so sick when he had a state visit here to the United States, he got drunk and what they called him running down the street butt naked. This is the leader of Soviet Union, you know. Um, I say all of this to say where we are today is not quite where we were, let us say, in 1985. Uh, it's a different moment in the fight for peace. The fight for peace is to ideologically and in other ways disarm the most dangerous nation in human history, the United States. That's what wokeness should mean. We are not there. We're not in that reality. The world movement that I grew up in and was a part of does not exist today. You know, what I'm saying is you could go get a plane from New York, fly to the GDR, German Democratic Republic, Berlin, East Berlin, and, you know, just chill. I'm among friends, or go to Cuba, or go to uh, Korea, or go to Vietnam or Afghanistan. It was a world movement. We are all wrapped in a single garment of destiny. We're fighting. That's why the great Roma Chandra, the head of the World Peace Council, 
can overlook and will forget it. Um, this was, a, but we're not there yet. Our country is less ideologically prepared to fight for peace. It's not on anybody's agenda. Nobody talks about it, you know, which is an odd situation for a woke nation. Woke doesn't mean awake. It doesn't mean clear. It means that you follow the line of the elite, which is the line of American imperialism. So I think as we go forward, we keep in front of us what we, the, the language that we have used in this discussion and how we talk just all the time. I mean, it's kind of like you talk about language. We don't know any other language. I mean, we wouldn't know how to uh, be a part of a lot of woke organizations because they're talking about pro pronouns and we're talking about an imperial retreat. But we have to continue this fight. It's almost like what they call the butterfly effect. A small event, far removed from the center of events, can affect everything in a positive way. And one second. <laughs> I won't negotiate an end like that Han guy. The last thing I want to say is I got a text from Munchie's daughter, Mimi, and just today, and, and she said, hi, Tony, just wanted to say hi to you and the group. Hope y'all are doing well. So, the fact that I got that means that she's healing and improving and doing better. And perhaps she'll be able to join us with her daughters, who I think are now teenagers. So that would be very, very good. So I'll shut my mouth today. <laughs> All right. You want to? Yeah, I mean, just before we, we just wanted to remind everybody oh, about, about the Bangladesh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of the world movement, I think like related to what Doc is saying, the this world movement doesn't exist, but the opportunities for the vision of that world movement for a new international economic order for the state of the people, for peace, for unity, for development. Uh, this is a very ripe time considering the rise of Asia. But to understand the possibilities, we have to go back to the past, like Doc is saying, um, which is why we're celebrating uh, the 100th anniversary of the liberation leader of Bangladesh, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, who uh, liberated his country from uh, basically neo-colonial oppression um, and fought for the Bengali language, but also really fought for the world. Um, and he was a really big part of the non-aligned movement and the struggle of people for their civilization, for their culture. So the event is called Bangabandhu Vishwabandhu 100. Bangabandhu means friend of the Bengali people, and Vishwabandhu means friend of the world. So I think that dialectical relationship we've been getting at, you know, friend of the people, friend of the world, um, he's someone who really exemplified that. So 
So we're going to be marking his centenary and also the 50th anniversary of the Bangladeshi liberation struggle uh, with a two-day conference. Um, the first day, we're going to be talking about the history uh, and also the, the relevance of the struggle for today, really getting an ideological grounding in what it meant and what it continues to mean in the context of the crisis of American politics, along with some cultural performances with a young man who sings uh, the music of Nazrul Sangeet, which is that progressive folk music that was so such a big part of this movement that's also been erased. And also we're going to have uh, music from the Black Freedom Struggle by Jake and Carolina. <laughs> um, and so, but the, uh, also the next day, the next day, so that is going to be April 24th from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock. But the next day, early in the morning at 8.30 our time, we're going to have an international keynote discussion, panel discussion with, um, if there's going to be three people, one is Doc, um, who's going to talk about, he's going to bring in this analysis for us. Um, but then also we have uh, a professor named Professor Rehman Sobhan, who is actually a participant in the struggle. Um, for He actually uh, helped coordinate the world movement for Bangladesh, raising the, so he actually came to the U.S. and he says that even though the state was completely against me, I couldn't get a meeting with anyone, Nixon, Kissinger, forget it. So he went to the people and he actually got a bill passed by Congress to, uh, against an arms embargo, which the state then, uh, you know, um, got around. But uh, he, he, is, he does belong to that generation of going back to the people, accountability to the people, you know, planning, uh, socialism. We also have a, 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 a professor from India named Prabhat Badnaik who studies, he can bring in this perspective of um, economic uh, imperialism as a world system. But just this, this analysis, this way of thinking about the world, this way of understanding uh, the world system and the movements and currents of history, we're, uh, we're trying to bring that back through this event. So that, um, so yeah, it'll be, so, yes, sorry. So yeah, yeah, April 20, so the first day, is, it's Saturday, April 24th from four o'clock to seven o'clock. Uh, and then the next day will be Sunday, April 25th, 8.30 a.m. Eastern time, 7 p.m. Indian Standard Time and 7.30 p.m. Bangladesh Time. So we'll we'll say it again next week. We'll also post it on the Facebook. It is posted, but we just wanted everybody to save the date and keep yeah. that evening and, and morning. We, we, it's posted on the Facebook event on the Saturday preschool page, and uh, it will be live streamed there as well for everybody who's uh, here on the live stream mm -hmm. in two weeks' time. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh,